please turn in your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible or a phone, whatever media you'd like here, please turn to Psalm 63. We'll be going through verse by verse and skipping around in it and flipping around to other passages, and you'll have to be fast. morning. Thank you for letting me share today. I'm excited to share with you from one of my favorite psalms, um, Psalm 63, on finding God's love in the wilderness. But first, let's begin with prayer. Um, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for helping those who are sick and for healing them. Uh, we thank you for uh, uh, helping uh, Lord us. We pray over uh, the Johnson family that you'd help them quickly get over their cold. We pray over uh, uh, Mama Sam that you would, um, you would give her all strength and steadfastness and hope and daily renewal and joy and uh, good medical aid that you would help and bring your healing to her bones. Thank you, Lord. We pray uh, over Greg who um, has an earache and uh, has just been feeling sick for a day here and often. Lord, we pray that you would uh, restore him and give her greater and greater health um, um, now. And we pray that his energy level would increase and his chronic pain level would decrease and that you would give him patience for the day and visions of God. We pray over Catherine that you would cause her cancer to uh, not only not advance, but to go into remission. We thank you, Lord, that though the body uh, may perish, that we will see your face, but we pray that you would cause many healings in our midst and that we would not come to you too quickly, but that you would give us more time for fruitful labor and grace for the day. We pray, Lord, that you would open our minds to understand the scripture, that you would cause us who cannot see you until or unless you open our eyes and open our minds. We pray that you would cause us to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we would know and understand what is the height and the breadth and the depth and the length and the intensity and the dimension of your love, which is beyond knowledge of the mind, but we must understand it in our minds. So anoint our minds to not be distracted and to hear from you. Anoint our soul and our body to fellowship with you from thought to emotion to, to that which is only experienced in the soul. And we thank you for the psalmist David. We thank you for leading him both into the wilderness and out of it. And we thank you for going into the wilderness before us, for finding victory over sin and sickness and the devil. And we thank you for the hope of resurrection. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit right now in the wilderness. Amen. Amen. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's the, that's the little... Uh, description in all caps in my Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, that's verse 1. And our verse 1 is the Hebrew Bible's verse 2. In the Hebrew Bible, this is 12 verses. So we're just going to um, take this as, uh, as though this is part of the text. Some theologians debate it, but today we will not. A Psalm of David, 
when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Please raise your hand if you've read uh, 1 Samuel. God, ever. It's most people great. Okay, so we don't have time to read 1 Samuel, but you have time to read 1 Samuel this week. Uh, last time I taught on David a couple of years ago um, and on all of his troubles and on all the ways the Lord helped him, I read 1 Samuel, most of it, everything about Almost everything about David, that's most of the book, uh, the night before the sermon, which is probably a mistake. But you can read it. You can read it in one sitting, too. Um, read First Samuel. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old. You can't understand the Psalms without, uh, without knowing the patriarchs and the prophets and those who went through it and those who wrote it. And you can't know God without the Word of God. So, Lord, open our minds to understand a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Could we get a picture of that on the screen if you have one? Thanks. You can just keep that up there for a while, please. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, in your name, I will lift up my hands. Amen. Amen. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So the first hint we get that something's wrong is in the Hebrew Bible, verse 1, in ours, the little uh, note at the top, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Could we get a picture of the wilderness of Judah up here? You could Google wilderness of Judah, Google images if you do that online. So who wants to go there? <laughs> I read about going there because I find it pretty exciting to go to like the idea of going to the ends of the earth and just getting out there as far away from electricity and people and uh, medevacs as you possibly can. And when we do our next GCF men's winter camping trip, I'll probably request to have a rule, no cell phones. 
just so we can get away from all that stuff. I like this kind of stuff. And I read you can go on a Jeep tour of the wilderness of Judah. Doesn't that sound okay? If you have a ream of water bottles, the temperature in the wilderness of Judah is uh, pretty warm in the winter, and in the summer it's over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. When I first moved from Alaska to Ohio, I remember my first August, and I think the average temperature was like 93 or 94. There were two or three or four brief rains, and then it got hot again after the rain, which I'd never heard of growing up in the cold all the time, or cool all the time, extremely rainy part of the bottom corner of Alaska. It's a rainforest, so I don't get this stuff. I actually don't have any idea, or didn't, what dry means until I traveled to Seattle. <laughs> Seattle was having a dry spell. I had, um, I, I learned later Seattle isn't always this dry. It was an unusual dry spell. Well, I'd never seen a dry spell. And then we went out uh, to eastern Washington where some relatives of mine live in uh, Cheney, or Cheney if you're not from there. And the average rainfall there is, mm, I just forgot, but I think it's uh, 20 inches. That's the same as the rainfall here if you're on the western slopes. Um, I didn't get a picture of the geography of Israel, um, so I'm going to draw it. So this is a map. The world is out there, and the Middle East is here, and uh, the bottom left corner of the Middle East is here. The Mediterranean Sea stretches out to the west, and then you have uh, Israel, its little coastline, kind of in between Asia and Africa and Europe, the crossroads of, I forget the nickname, it's the crossroads of something, civilization. And then you have uh, like these sloping hills coming up from the sea, and then you have the hill country, uh, and then you have the mountains, and that's where Jerusalem is, right in the mountains. That's why there's that verse, you might know it, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds or is round about his people both now and forevermore. It's on a mountain, in the mountains, with the mountains kind of like all around it. And then from there, you, go, uh, you can go further east. And if you go further east from, uh, from uh, Jerusalem, then you get into this stuff. And uh, just maybe if we could get that picture of the wilderness again. You get into this stuff, and if you Google, you'll see similar pictures. Some are like sloping hills, and some are rocky, craggy places like this. Uh, in the winter, they get a little bit of rain, and there's some grass. Uh, and then in the summer, there's no grass. Um, so I think of this as like eastern Washington. I'd never seen anything like it. It was dreadful. I couldn't understand how a snake could live there, but then I guess that was new to me. Well, if you've never been in the wilderness, it's, um, it's a dry and a thirsty land here in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, it is fit for things like scorpions and snakes and an occasional uh, uh, highly specifically designed and adapted wilderness beast like some kind of goat or mountain sheep sort of thing, like a rock badger or whatever. There are things that live out there, but not much, so... I want you to imagine you leave your phone behind in Jerusalem and you're running for your life because that's what David was doing when he was in the wilderness. And this happened not once but twice in his life and both times were horrible. And this was a, this was a miserable place and a miserable time in his life. Both times were due to dreadful family uh, circumstances. Um, 
And while we're not sure which time he was in the wilderness that he wrote this psalm, it's highly likely it was the first time. So here's what happened, and you can read about it in 1 Samuel. Um, David, uh, well, he's this boy uh, who doesn't get included by his father in the family lineup when the prophet Samuel comes to anoint one of his sons as the next king of Israel because God has rejected King Saul, right? Um, and then after going through all the sons, Samuel's like, well, is this, is this all your kids? And he's like, well, yeah, there's David. Has your father ever treated you like that? I hope not, maybe. Um, that's a painful upbringing. And uh, so they call him in, and everybody stands there waiting for him. And he comes in, and his job is shepherd. Um, somebody's got to be a shepherd. I mean, it's not all bad. Um, but in, uh, I mean, uh, a shepherd would be like a pretty low job. But wonderfully, the Lord doesn't think being a shepherd is a low occupation because he is the chief shepherd. And he calls this boy the, a shepherd from tending the flock. Um, and by the way, about being a shepherd uh, there in the hills um, near Bethlehem, um, that wasn't easy either. When you're a shepherd, you're kind of alone. Uh, like, like other people want to do other things, and one person can shepherd the flock, right? So there he is, a kid, what is he, 12, 14? And so kind of a young man sort of in that culture, but kind of a boy too, sort of caught in the middle. And being a shepherd is both a lonely uh, job that requires a lot of responsibility and vigilance because out in in the hills, there are beasts. Um, Now, there aren't so much, but back then, there were wolves and lions and bears. Uh, I like to know all about the bears. Um, I think it might have been this, uh, like, Eurasian or Asiatic bear. I don't care about that. Well, anyway, if you were there, you'd want to know all about exactly like their, all these carnivores' behavior and patterns and habits. Do they prowl at night? Do they come at sunrise and sunset? Uh, being a shepherd is hard because you're out there and you're in charge of the sheep. And if you don't, uh, if you're not aware of, of the beast coming in the night, it's going to come in and it's going to grab up the lamb from the flock and you're not even going to see it or hear it because it might not even get a, a bat out. And so David had what was called a rod. It was a club. Um, It's a traditional club. You can find something similar in various cultures uh, around Africa, too. Um, It was probably a shaft with a knob at the end, maybe like a knot of wood and then uh, carved thinner. Um, You can can whack something. And on the tip of it, they might have had a sharp little point so that um, the mass of the, the weight... Of the, of the rod as it swung would be concentrated into um, about, you know, several square millimeters. So it creates an incredible amount of pounds per square inch of pressure, and it cracks the skull of a beast like a lion or a bear. So it is possible for this boy with a sling, which in the hands of a skilled person is a rather deadly weapon, and if a stone slung accurately strikes... I mean, it takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of bravery to be up against a bear or a lion and use a a hand weapon like a sling or a club, which requires you to be this far from 
a bear's claws and jaws or the lion's mouth. This is David's youth. Life was tough, and his parents put him out there and, uh, and didn't include him in the lineup. And then he goes into, uh, he gets anointed king, and that's dreadful because if you know anything about ancient civilizations, if there's any possibility of a rival king in, uh, throughout history, what is probably most common is the, the sitting king will find you and kill you. So being anointed as king was more terrifying than exciting for David. Look down here at the last verse, verse 11. I think he wrote this psalm before he became king. He said, but the king shall rejoice in God. I think he wasn't king yet when he wrote this, but he knew God was going to preserve his life and keep his promise. God had sent the prophet to anoint him as king. And then uh, he was uh, 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 there at the battle with the Philistines. Uh, You know the story. Um, Clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, he, the smallest of their, the smallest person on the battlefield, I think, went up against an extremely large person, a giant. This guy's like, you know, like, you know, he's got a stoop to go through the doorways, like enormous, taller than Shaq, you know, and you know, the Bible describes the weight of his weapons, and it's kind of staggering if you take a few minutes to translate shekels to pounds, you know. What is his javelin, like 15 pounds or something? Um, I went over to John Bradbury's recently, and John likes to lift weights, and uh, I don't. Um, I like looking at him and eating a sandwich. And um, is it okay if I tell this? So he had the lightweights on the end of the bar. Okay, the bar itself is heavy, and uh, and and he had like I don't know two ten pounders on either side. And I go to lift the weight, and uh, I'm like, mm, I've got strong legs, but I don't have strong arms. I have Tyrannosaurus arms, and. <laughs> And I go to lift it, and I was like, <laughs> you know, I did that a few times, and I was kind of joking around. And he was like, well, John, just lift it. And he picks it up, and he goes, it didn't even have heavy weights on it, but the bar is heavy. And, uh, and I think it was about the weight of, of the spear, the, the javelin that uh, Goliath would pick up. And I think when he saw David coming, I think with deadly pinpoint accuracy, he hurled that javelin, and if, if so, David dodged it. Anyway, David closes to slingshot range. And, uh, and with, with the skill that the Lord had given him and courage like no man, he, he uh, went up against that enemy of the Lord. And the Lord rescued and delivered their people. And uh, Saul saw it, Right? And Saul, I don't think he had heard yet that David was anointed to be the next king of Israel, but it wasn't long before he found it out. And Saul's like, oh, this guy can do stuff, so we'll put him in charge of, you know, my army. Um, And he makes him a captain and then a commander, and he advances, and he puts him out in front of the Philistines, and people start singing songs, praising David uh, relative to Saul, and they sing, David has slain, or Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands, What do you think Saul thought about that? Well, Saul, we know, he did some good things at the start of his reign, uh, even some really good things, and the whole rest of his reign uh, could be, uh, the epitome of it is that his main work in life is that he builds a monument to himself. 
It's the exact opposite of living a life for the glory of God. Well, living a life for the glory of God is easy if you're in Eden and the fall has not happened. But for us and for all saints who have come before us, living a life for the glory of God in self-forgetfulness and in praising the Lord and in seeking His face continually is, it's next to impossible when you're in the wilderness and you're in the wilderness more than not. And after becoming more and more jealous of David, uh, Saul made a couple of attempts on his life. Um, he hurled his spear at him and at his own son, who he hoped to be next in line. It was kind of a crazy family situation, a uh, very, very, uh, lot of turmoil in that family. And David then was promised Saul's eldest daughter, uh, who then was given to somebody else. How disappointing is that? Oh, sorry, you were going to get married, but now you're not. Ouch. David has already lived a life of suffering and pain long before this psalm was composed. So then uh, Saul's like, well, I'll give him my youngest daughter. And I think what Saul's motivation was, was this will keep David close to me, and then I'll be able to force him to remain a commander in my army, and I'll and then I'll put him on the front lines, and instead of me having to kill him, you know, let my, this Bible says this, let my hand not be against him, let the Philistines kill him. Saul really wanted David dead, and he's got this conniving, just slippery, I mean, this is a horrible family situation to be in. If you've ever had any family trouble, everybody has, uh, you know that family trouble is usually the most painful kind of trouble in life, and... Uh, and usually the most challenging relationships are the one closest to you. Sorry, Leah. <laughs> um, so, so life is really hard for David. Uh, life is also really dangerous. So living sword's length from the next Philistine who is coming up against him, and I imagine there are some really good warriors. His, jaw, his occupation was incredibly dangerous, um, God preserved his life and kept him from the power of the sword and kept him from the tip of uh, his father-in-law's spear. And despite the misery and painful trouble and disappointment and loss he'd already experienced and the difficult childhood and the difficulties with his own father and the danger of lions and bears, and I don't think wolves usually attack people, but it's happened. Um, God had delivered him from the mouth of the lion again and again. And he has now, I don't know how old he is. Um, I guess I'd have to go back, 20s or 30s. Uh, and now Saul has made it clear that the attempts he's made on his life are not going to be um, by, by cunning and... Uh, and strategy and putting him out in the front lines of the army any longer, now Saul's attempts on his life are going to be by his own hand and by the hands of his own commandos. And if you know anything about kings and armies, you know that not all soldiers are the same. You have soldiers, and then you have elite soldiers. And the soldiers that the king keeps near him are usually the really good ones like the king's bodyguard, the special forces. And back in the old days, things are no different than now. 
the guys that Saul kept with him would have been dreadfully dangerous people to fight against, right? Uh, trained, skilled, and tough as nails, and brave. And Saul chases, David flees for his life into the wilderness. And I think that's where he penned this psalm. And Saul comes after him with his commandos. I'm sure he came with his very best special forces guys. Except for a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, unless you've read 1 Samuel, you don't yet get any hint from this psalm that anything is wrong until you get down to verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life. You see, they're in the wilderness where there's very little to eat and very little to drink. Have you ever been so thirsty that your lips cracked? Have you ever been so thirsty that you woke up every morning with a sore throat? Have you ever been in the wilderness where you really are alone? All of us have felt alone. David felt alone and was alone. He had some people around him. Um, but those who seek to destroy my life. There are different kinds of wilderness. There's the wilderness of grief, the wilderness of physical pain, uh, the wilderness of loneliness. There's the wilderness of betrayal by one who you trusted. There's the wilderness of disappointment. There's the wilderness of disappointment in God. All of these are real, and we experience our own pain in our own way. Um, it's impossible to really compare it to that of anybody else's. But is it in the Proverbs where it says, uh, the heart knows its own pain? Can somebody quote that for me, please? Anybody know that one? We'll skip over it. The, the, it says that nobody, nobody knows the pain you're going through except you, is what that proverb means. Somebody else might have even gone through something similar. Somebody else might truly empathize and be present with you. But there's something about pain that is deeply experienced in the soul. David had been and was going to continue experiencing a life of intermittent but deep pain. The second time he went into the wilderness, it was because his son Absalom had risen up against him in rebellion. Saul feared a rebellion. David wouldn't raise a hand against Saul. He said, I won't, I won't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But David's own son chased him, years after this, outside Jerusalem into this very same wilderness. The bitterness of the bro that level of brokenness in your family, I, I, I can't, I can't. This is the same wilderness that Jesus went into when he was tempted, I believe. It's the same wilderness that John the Baptist lived in. The first hint we get of the trouble David's in is, but those who seek to destroy my life. You see, it was his own family member who was not using words. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Well, uh, words, words hurt as deeply as, as the point of a sword. And Saul, 
in his hatred and jealousy of David, his father-in-law was chasing him into the wilderness to destroy his life. And when you first read this, this might be a little upsetting to you. You might read verses uh, 9 and 10 and think, uh, David shouldn't have prayed that. And as we get into this psalm, I want to challenge that first of all. David wrote, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. That sounds like nobody's going to care about them. They're going to die and just dogs will eat them. Nobody's going to bury them. There's no honor in their, in their death. Another possible way to translate this is... Uh, uh, their houses shall be left desolate and be a place for foxes. So, like, nobody's going to live there. They're gone. Um, I don't think David was praying, Lord, uh, I don't think he was praying with hate, with vengeance in his heart against Saul and the others who were lying about him to destroy his reputation. And by the way, um, let me skip that. And... Uh, uh, yeah, his, his wife was taken away and given to another man while he was away. Just, what does that even mean? I don't think in all of this, David was praying for vengeance against his adversaries. I think that he wrote verses 9 and 10 by a special word of knowledge a revelation from God, an insight that you can only have in the presence of God. That when we find ourselves in the sanctuary, when we're caught up in the presence of God, deep in worship and prayer and meditation on the scriptures, when we gather to praise his name, you start to have special insights from the Holy Spirit. The book of Hebrews says that he still speaks. He speaks through his word. He speaks to our spirit. I think that David penned verses 9 and 10, not out of an attitude or spirit of vengeance, but I think the Lord revealed to him as he's been lying there night after night in the watches of the night that, that God was going to let his justice win. God's justice wins. Those who love God will continue to praise him, but the wicked will be stifled. You may have someone who troubles you your whole life long, and we, you may pass on and go into his presence without seeing that person come to justice. God's justice wins. Those who love God will continue to praise him, but the wicked will be stifled. David wasn't even the king yet when he said, but the king shall rejoice in God. But he knew that God was going to preserve his life and keep his promise. We know that too. Turn with me to John 10, 28. John 10, 28 says, 
from the chief shepherd, chief shepherd, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you are in the wilderness and you are being troubled from within and from without, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. From the top, David prays, Oh God, it's a cry. It's, it's, a, it's a yell. It's a moan. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Are you in a dry and weary land, saints? Are you hungering and thirsting? God takes us into the wilderness, not to kill us there, but to satisfy the longing of our souls. David knew that he would find the answer in the presence of God. When he says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. What's that talking about? What's the sanctuary he's talking about? The temple hasn't been built yet. It's, it's the tent of meeting. It's the sanctuary at Shiloh. David had been there. He wrote uh, in another psalm, like, uh, when can I go and meet God? And I remember leading the festal throng uh, into the temple with shouts and pray of praise, Right? And that's uh, Psalm 42 or 43, both of which are very alike to Psalm 63, and they should be read together, but we don't have time. Um, these are the deep cries of a man who has been overwhelmed. He says in Psalm 42 or 43, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Do you know what it's like to go to the sea with your little boogie board on a family vacation? And you're expecting sun, sand, and surfing. And then you realize you've never, you've never done this before. And you've actually never been in the waves like that. Before. You don't know what a breaker is. And you'll find out when you try to surf. When a wave, which is almost flat, maybe millimeters or inches high out to sea, moves fast and, and the, the ground level comes up beneath it, the, the wave moves super fast and not high, and as it approaches shore, if you've studied waves in your physics classes, I hope you have it, they're fascinating. The wave slows down and it piles up. The water, you know, it just circles around. The water isn't really all moving into shore, of course. It's a wave, right? But, but as, it, uh, as it gets to shore, that changes. Uh, the, 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 the water, the water molecules moving under the surface come up against the uh, upward sloping ground, and those, those can't keep going in their circle short at the bottom and great at the top. And the wave, uh, the, the top of the wave keeps going and the bottom stops, right? <laughs> so it's like this. You're there and you have your little boogie board and you've never had salt water up your nose before. <laughs> the salinity of the ocean is like 
3.4 to 3.7 plus percent. It's, uh, it's actually the most in the Mediterranean Sea of just about anywhere in the world. It's like more than 3.7. And if you've never had that salty water up your nose, it's a miserable experience. It's less like fun and more like being waterboarded because you're trying to catch your breath with this kind of sharp, sharp, burning, searing pain in your nose, and it gets in your eyes, and even that hurts after a while. And, and you're trying to breathe, and of course, you take a big breath, and you get a little bit of water in your lungs, and you start uncontrollably coughing. What happens with the breaker is the water piles up, you know this, and the top tips over. Well, if your head is here, and your body is here, and you're standing in the sand down here, and the wave is coming over you, at about the time it comes over you and gets in your ears, nose, and eyes, the nose being by far the worst, I think, except for maybe the lungs, it's, it's the side wall of the wave that smacks you upside the head, and it's actually like being hit in the face. Um, it hurts, and it may knock you down. It's all very miserable. That's one wave. That's one breaker. In Psalm 42 and 43, like Psalm 63, David is crying out, and he says, all your waves and breakers have gone over me. That's more than one. Are you there, saints? Are you in the wilderness? David knows God is in control. He knows from experience that God has been my help. God has delivered this man again and again and again from father-in-law He's helped him in his own family and those difficult relationships with his own brothers, um, always accusing him, and sometimes it's like that. And he's helped him uh, from the sword and the bow of the Philistine. He's helped him, and here he is, and probably he wakes up every morning with a sore throat, and probably his lips are cracked. I hate that. I have chapstick. In my bed, I reach over, and I've got a little box, and the chapstick is right there. Because during the night, I've got to use it at least once. Otherwise, my lip cracks right here. And then first thing in the morning, I wake up. Actually, I have to put eye drops in before I open my eyes, because my eyes are dry in the morning. And, uh, and if I don't have the chapstick on already, uh, it cracks right here. And every day, it gets worse and worse. And it just hurts so bad to wake up. And that's like just scratching the surface of what it's like to be in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. There's got to be some, otherwise he'd be dead. How long can you live with water? Maybe seven days, maybe three. There's some, but it's hard to find and he can't always get to it. But it's nine verses down before we even have a hint that anything is wrong. Because here's how this psalmist, who's... who's uh, pen songs are a pattern, an example for how we should think when we're in trouble and how we should pray when we're in distress and when we are troubled, which is more often than not in the Christian life, I think. That's normal. God is in control, and he knows it, and he knows how thirsty he is for that water. And at times, at one time, David said, oh, that someone would bring me a drink from the well that is at Bethlehem. You remember that one? And what he's praying for, what he's thinking about in the watches of the night, well, first of all, what on earth are the watches of the night? Does anybody have an analog clock that they've kept on their nightstand? You know what I mean? When you watch the hours go around, right? 
that's not the watches of the night, that's just us watching the clock. The watches of the night are much worse than being awake at night and unable to sleep. Here's what the watches of the night are. The watches of the night are something uh, measured out in chunks. The night is divided into so many sections. And when you're on watch, you're the one who's responsible for guarding the lives of everybody behind you, hiding out in the cave from King Saul. You're the sentry on duty Everybody is depending on you to stay awake and alert and to hear in the night the sound of a commando you can't see or like a shepherd, a wild beast stalking the sheep. And being up during the night watches is not just lying awake at night because you have some insomnia, which is bad enough. The night watches were a scary time because you don't know if you're going to make it until morning. David is, during the night watches, he's comforting his soul in God. He's saying things like, find rest, O my soul, in God alone. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Our souls are often downcast. Our souls are often troubled. That's pretty typical in the Christian life, but God's plan for our lives is to go from strength to strength, to go from well to well, oasis to oasis. Even when we're going through, as another psalm says, the valley of Baca, God will provide for us strength, springs in the wilderness of life to satisfy the longing of our soul. And what this psalm is all about is finding comfort in God's steadfast love in the midst of the wilderness. And even in the night watches, he's turning his mind, and we must also do this too. He's turning his mind to God. He's turning his mind from, somebody might be sneaking up on me, I wonder how I might die by morning, right? He's turning his mind from scary thoughts, from real and present, real fear and clear and present danger. He's turning his mind to the Lord who has been his help. You know, saints, he has helped you when you were in the wilderness before. And you know, he will help you again tonight. God will help us when morning dawns. Turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, um, Psalm 17, verse 15. Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The night is long, but Christ is the bright and morning star, and his, the Spirit of God, sent from the Father and the Son, is with us through the night long. Hope in God. Why are you troubled? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Many nights I've flipped the, reached for this, and it's easier to see it in the dark if it's highlighted because it's hard to see in the dark. And 
and I've got this circled and highlighted so I can find it and read it again and again. David has been through the night, and he's been in the wilderness, and like some of us, he's there now. And in Psalm 16, verse 11, he wrote, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I can preach this, but you can't understand this unless the Spirit of God opens your minds to this and makes the living word, and, and the living word causes the written word to come alive in your hearts. And Lord, will you do that for us, please? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I have a problem with that. Not with that verse. I have a problem with fat and rich food. Um, I'm addicted to dark chocolate. And uh, I'm not going to say I don't eat it every day for breakfast. Just so that nobody teases me about it. But uh, I do want to say... Um, it's not a sin unless you eat it all at once, unless you eat the whole bar. <laughs> and uh, Matt, thank you for the chocolate bar you gave me at Christmas. I, after you left uh, on Christmas Day, I think, I think I tried to wrap it up until morning. But the reason I did that wasn't because I was patient. It's because I didn't want to share. <laughs> and when I got to work the next day, uh, there was nobody in my clinic, and I was like, ha, ha, ha. And I got it out, and I ate it all. And my, my, my stomach and my taste buds were so satisfied. That was a very thoughtful gift. Thank you. <laughs> I know from experience that when I am overwhelmed, when I, I just can't think, when I'm in physical pain, when, I, when I'm exhausted, when I'm anxious as heck, when, um, when I'm lying awake in bed at night and I have this nagging fear, or when I have a temptation that's like so overwhelming, it's all I can do to not give in to the temptation, whatever it may be, you know. That I've got to get into the presence of God. You must seek Him with all your heart. But the promise of the Father is that by the power and presence of God, the Holy Spirit, you will seek Him and find Him when you seek Him with all your heart. And I want that to be the takeaway that you take home with you today. Um, it is so much harder to seek God in the wilderness when you're thirsty because it's kind of like that takes up all your mental energy. But... God, in his infinite wisdom, not in cruelty and not to harm us, takes us deep down in the valley of Tsalmovet, the valley of deep darkness, the valley of the shadow of death, because that's where the paths of righteousness lead. And then he takes us out from there into a broad place, and boom, you're surrounded by enemies. But there with, uh, in the words of John Weiss on my favorite Psalm 23 sermon ever, you're surrounded by a hundred-foot-thick bulletproof glass, and they can't touch you because there the Lord prepares a table before you in the presence of my enemies. I know that 
Only goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life, he writes in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy, the word for mercy is chesed, as my wife likes to say, chesed. And we kind of argue about that jokingly. But we named our daughter uh, chesed or chesed, that's her middle name, Lily Chesed Gray. Because we, when we thought we were going to lose her, um, the Lord... uh, preserved her life, and we have her to this day. And though there is loss in life, um, the Lord's steadfast love continues through loss, and the word here in verse 3 for steadfast love is the same word as in Psalm 23. It's the word chesed. And I want to tell you, as we move towards closing, what chesed means. You can find out what chesed means in Luke chapter 15. Please turn there with me. David already knew the chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord, which never ceases. When you are in the wilderness, it does not mean that God has abandoned you. God has brought you there to satisfy your longing in a sun-scorched land. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, I wish you were dead. At least that's what he meant. Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. By the way, he's, in, he's outside the territory of the people of God. He is in Gentile lands, right? The citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. To a first century Jew, that is disgusting. It's the lowest of the low. And the food that should have gone in his mouth and in his belly and satisfied his hunger was going to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I die I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. These are the words These are the words that must likewise echo in our hearts when we find ourselves in the wilderness either by our own doing or by no fault of our own. To God it's kind of all the same. He said, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. You see, our sins and our sufferings do not drive God away. Rather, they draw out his deepest heart of compassion for us. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son tries to get out his prepared spiel. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Was he? Well, no. But in the eyes of the father of this son, he's like, so? It doesn't matter. Of course we are not worthy of God's love. And you have to hold on to that, saints. If you still think you're worthy of God's love, you can't know the depths of God's love. When you get into the wilderness and you get to the lowest of low, and you know that you're unworthy, and you bear your soul before our Father, the first words out of his mouth are going to be something like, welcome home. And he interrupts his son. I think he actually interrupted him while he was talking, and he starts giving orders. Quickly, bring the best robe. Get the best fat, rich food. Uh, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. You see, when we draw near to God in our sin or in our suffering, in our wilderness and in our spiritual or physical dryness, it is God's deepest delight to fellowship with us there. And I know, have known, and will know again that my soul will be satisfied in the presence of God and nowhere else. Because in what it was, I think perhaps the darkest hour of my life, it was a deep, dark winter in Alaska, and I, this was years ago, I had thought, you know, I dated a girl, and when you're a kid, you think uh, you're going to marry the first, whoever you're dating then, and then you date somebody else, and you think you're going to marry them, and anyway, this was one of those, thank God, it didn't, but, um, but you know, so, uh, so I had been broken up with, and actually, I went to this little school out in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, and there were, I had five friends that I'd made that first year, and one of them was this girl who dumped me, and I deserve to be dumped, trust me, and, and all of the others didn't return to the college that next year, except for the one of them um, who had been dumped by one of the other ones, and she didn't want anything to do with any man, so I think I talked to her once or twice that whole year. So I had literally lost all my friends, and, and I had been dumped, and I'm out here in the cold, kind of desert-like winter, uh, and it's like 20, 30, 40 degrees below zero. That's not below freezing. It's a kind of a desert, and it's, when, it's that, when it's dark for that many months, and when there's more night than day in the day, it is hard. Your vitamin D levels drop. You don't go outside and exercise. Your serotonin levels decrease, and chemically and physically and emotionally and in your soul, it's, it's pretty hard. And all this stuff had been going on, and we had just had a one-week special guest speaker at that little college teaching on... The, the prodigal son, or as some people say, the prodigal God. And he had this big painting of the father embracing the son out front. And this is what David is thinking of in Psalm 23. 
because he has known the Aramean in Psalm 63, and in so many of his psalms, he's thinking about the embrace of the Father and of the purity and the elevation of the soul, the satisfaction, yes, the ultimate satisfaction that is known in God alone. He knew that God would satisfy him in the morning with his steadfast love. There, in what I think was one of the most difficult points of my whole life, I remember just bawling. And it was the, you know, you, you have crying, and then you have crying where you kind of blubber and you're having a hard time breathing. And then you have crying where your nose runs, and that's like the worst kind of crying. And, you know, you're kind of like trying to get a breath in through your sobbing. And I was a pretty miserable young kid at the time, and uh, it was like all three. And all of a sudden, and I was like laying it all out before the Lord in prayer there. And I had just read What's So Amazing About Grace, a book about the amazing grace of God and his love for sinners and sufferers. And I was thinking thoughts that mirrored, I think, David's in that hour in a, in a very beginning or immature form. I laid it all out before the Lord, and I was kind of like, see, God, this is me. And when your mind races and kind of like your life flashes before your eyes, I was thinking of, I was thinking of all the things I was ashamed of of all hurt and pain I was experiencing or had experiencing, experienced, and I was thinking of things I'd recently and in the past done wrong, and that couldn't really be undone because the relationships were broken. I have some of those uh, in my past, and, and I just couldn't fix it. And it was winter, dark, dark winter, dry winter. And in the presence of God, for one of the first times in my life, but certainly the most powerful time I had yet experienced to that date, all I could think about, I was suddenly, my soul was suddenly filled with the love and the grace of God, and I couldn't get that picture of the prodigal or recklessly loving, covenant loving, chesed love. You, it, the, the son can go away, but the father draws him back, steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. And God spoke to, him, to me the words of eternal life in that hour. And I want you to know that that's available for you. You will seek him and find him when you seek him with all your heart. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. Our faithfulness is, at its best, not very good, and at its worst, it's pretty crummy. And we do not have any hope or confidence in our great faithfulness. Our confidence and our hope is in you. We pray that as we go through the wildernesses of life, you would help us to say with the psalmist David, my soul clings to you, that all of our hope would be in you, and that would be, we would become less and less likely to be satisfied with the fat and the rich food of life, but that we would more deeply hunger and thirst for you, you who suffered in my place, you who went into the wilderness before me, and who went onto the wilderness of the cross for my sake. We thank you, Lord, for giving your body and your blood and we thank you for this blood of the covenant by which you have made with us an everlasting covenant that cannot be broken, 
that your steadfast love is for us and that you will never stop delighting in your kids. Thank you for adopting us, O oh God. Amen.